Hi, everyone. This is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so that we can develop products that our customers love. And today we're talking about an important aspect of product development, product management, and that's selecting, planning, and prototyping product features. To help us, our guest is Matt Genovese. He is the founder and CEO of Planorama Design. He has in-depth experience marketing products, addressing product requirements, research, UX design, and management. He has spent the first half of his 25-year engineering career in the semiconductor industry as a chip designer, and the later half in the software product development. So he has a really good experience in both hardware and software aspects for us. As always, we create a detailed written summary of everything we discuss. You'll find those show notes at productmasterynow.com slash 458. You'll also find there a one-page action guide you can download, and that will give you a summary of the key takeaways from our discussion as well in one page, make that easy for you to share with your team. Do want to remind you this episode is made possible today by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. That's the RPM experience, which helps product VPs and leaders get their product managers and everyone else contributing to your product on the same page to increase performance and working in alignment to reach our North Star objectives. It works best for new teams or established teams that are facing a big challenge. Teams learn the seven essential product knowledge areas and they build trust and collaboration in the process. It's unlike any other training. To see how it's unique, go to productmasterynow.com RPM and see if it can help you. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. We were both uh, talking just before we started the recording. Unfortunately, we both have coughs, so uh, we'll, we'll, we have our, our mute button close by, but uh, we'll do our best with this. Yeah, I'm going to be hitting it quite a bit, I think, while you're talking and vice versa. <laughs> and we're both in sunny places. It just happens to be stuff going around. That's right. <clears throat> I think we both got it from our kids, which is unfortunate. Okay. <laughs> so our topic, the, the title of this episode is Selecting, Planning, and Prototyping Product Features. And you know, selecting the features that create the most value for customers is really foundational to our work as product managers. It's a topic that comes up often. How do we do this? And I was really interested in talking with you because of that experience in hardware that you have mm-hmm. and experience also in software. Mm. And what have you seen over your career, uh, maybe what you're seeing now as well, certainly, about selecting product features? What, what kind of challenges have come up? In hardware, it's a little interesting because the the features are normally planned out well ahead of time right the, the if you're thinking about building a chip you you are getting feedback from customers and the the process to release a new chip is very long so you you certainly do not have this rapid iteration capability in agile in software that you have and that that is you don't have that in hardware so you end up being a lot more waterfall in hardware and so your feature understanding you have to capture that from customers and build that into a specification for your next major release of your chip. And chips can take for up, upwards of a year to, to go from design to, to being out the door. So that's a bit of a challenge in hardware. And it doesn't, it doesn't always carry over to the software area. Obviously, in software, we are working on projects that can be never-ending, right? Any SaaS application can be a never-ending process. But we do have this ability to learn as we go along, which is one of the tenets of Agile. We're going to learn something as we move forward. And part of doing that is really trying to learn little bits about what the customer needs and turn that into value that we can build into the application that they will eventually receive and be able to make use of. 
And then you get to this iterative process. One of the things I'll say that I see that is, is very useful is to start small and try to validate or mitigate risk. You may not even have to build an application to validate if your features um, that you're anticipating are actually going to work. You don't have to even build software. Sometimes you can just take a need of uh, a problem that the customer is experiencing and and build something very quick or even prototype it in such a way that that they can that you can test out if that value is actually being delivered. Does that make sense? It, it certainly does. Do you have an example that you've that comes to mind about starting small, doing that kind of validation testing? Sure. In fact, it's funny. Even just the other day, I was speaking with a, a, an old friend of mine, and we were talking about a project that he he was thinking of undertaking. And it turned out that as we started looking at it, and this was actually using artificial intelligence and using large language models to help analyze data and produce some heuristics or produce some metrics about what is happening with that inbound data, you may not even need to build a, an application. You may just be able to script it out and produce a CSV, a, a spreadsheet, right? And show that back to the customer and just say, hey, is this solving your problem? Yeah, it's not a software package, right? But is this producing the type of output that you were anticipating that you actually need to solve your problems and your own business processes? And as we talked more about it, that was going to be the right output. And there was no software to be built, right? Except right. for maybe the script, except for the script itself to, to produce that. And at that point, you're fine-tuning and I don't mean fine-tuning in the AI sense, fine-tuning in the business sense. You're fine-tuning what is the what output is going to move the needle for your customer, for your users. And then you go from there, right? So yeah. that was that, that's probably a great example of uh, you don't have to build a thing. You don't even need to involve development other than to help you with the script <laughs> if you need help with that. Yeah, there, there's different ways to think about prototypes, right? And they, mm -hmm. a prototype doesn't have to be a functional thing. It doesn't have to even be... The, the real thing, the, like the, the shape of it that you would look at, it has to be something that helps us get new, new information. With my professor hat on teaching graduate innovation courses, students often think of the MVP as it's going to be the first version of the thing we release. Apps are often like a team project that they'll pick, right? We're going to create an app to make it easier for people to find pet boarding or to lose weight or whatever the topic is. And they think about, we'll put together the app with these minimum set of features. It's like, what if we thought about the MVP just as a learning tool? It could be the mm -hmm. first thing you release, but what if we back up and just say, what is it you really have to test? What is it you don't know about the, That's right. your audience, right? And what could you test? Mm -hmm. When you go digging into MVPs, there's all kinds of, of names for them, right? The, the Wizard of Oz, the person behind the curtain that is just faking the whole thing. I know a guy that sold his business for $6 million collecting, making it easy for you to fill out social security uh, requests for a new social security card. And they really? threw up this form online and they got a great yeah. URL name. And then they ha had, they literally hired grandmothers to work in the back room. When people typed in stuff into the form, they did all the paperwork, right? Like you normally do. To, oh my gosh. And they just See, faked they, the whole thing, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And so we, there's we, all kinds we, of ways to learn without actually building the thing yet. There's, I think what we get hung up with MVP is that we think we, we put the emphasis on the P, on the product, and we think it has to look like a product, right? But really, I think you're just trying to say, what's the minimum thing we can do to solve their problem? It, it doesn't, it's not to make a good acronym. <laughs> I don't know what the acronym would be for that. But 
if you can really just look at it as, hey, you've got a problem. Imagine they emailed you and said, hey, I've got this problem. How would you solve it? I'd probably write this script and do this and try this. And is this what you're looking for? Yes or no? Oh, great. Okay. Right. Now we can. Now we have a path to go down. Right. We can walk that journey together. And then we can talk about what their workflows are, how they're going to use that information in the future, and then see how you can further solve their problem. Yeah. I think a lot of the distinction here is between kind of a startup mentality where hopefully we're scrappy and we're thinking that way. What, mm -hmm. What's the minimum we can do to make this as easy as possible? And, and I love asking that question. If we made this as easy as we possibly could, what would we do? Versus the larger organization perspective, which is often, okay, if this becomes a project, you know, that carries its own weight around it. And as you said, the, the P is the real problem in VP yeah. because people start thinking about this. If we're going to make a product or even a prototype, it's, it has more weight around it and, and we have to make something real, so to speak. I know some people have adopted the language of the MVE, the minimum viable experiment. Oh, yeah. That's a smart one, too. Yeah, that's to a, that's try to bring move. it into the startup language. Whenever you build anything, you become invested in it. And that's the problem. When you have a product that you're starting to build, you're creating a groove for a marble to go down. Mm. And maybe that groove is not going in the right direction. But you become invested because right. you know, otherwise you'd have to, you know, you're in a bad bet, right? You don't want right. to admit that you did wasteful work. So in some ways, you're trying to prevent yourself from that mental trap, from building too much that you're going to become invested in, and you're going to build a great product that nobody wants. And that's the thing we very much want to avoid. I'm curious about an issue that if you have ran into this or not, especially with the kind of the um, physical engineering perspective, software engineering perspective. As product people, we hopefully are listening to our customers, understanding their real problem, identifying what creates value for them. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to bring that to an, an engineering group for manufacturing stuff, whatever the case mm -hmm. is. Yes. And sometimes the engineering team doesn't listen to us, right? They have their own perspective of what needs to be built and what they want to work on next. Mm. Have you ran into this? And what, what do you do in this situation? Yeah, that's a good question. Usually engineering team... I, actually, you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> You have a part of this interview where you're going to ask me one of my favorite quotes, <laughs> and I'm going mm -hmm. to bring it up a little bit right now because okay. the, one of the reasons that the sneak peek is that it's perfect is the enemy of good enough or good, right? Mm -hmm. And that goes back to, to Voltaire and Montesquieu. But when you think about it, engineers are usually striving for perfection, right? They strive to have everything perfect, right? They want all their classes perfect. They want all the methods in the classes. They want all the infrastructure, everything to be perfect. And on the other hand, customers just want to get something fixed. They just want their value to be, they want value to be there. They want have their problem addressed, their challenges addressed. And the, I think the challenge is that these don't, these scenarios don't always mix well right? The engineering team wants to make it perfect because designers and engineers tend to be perfectionists. And at the same time, customers want a problem to be solved. So how do you mitigate that? It's a, I, I think there's a lot of people that probably have a lot of different opinions about how to address it. Part of it is, look, the development team probably has technical debt that they want to address, right? They want to make their application perfect because they know that in the future, they're going to you're going to have some payment come due. And I mean that in a, we're going to, we're going to get burdened down with something. We have to rewrite code. We're going to have to redo something. And I think allowing them the time to have that technical debt addressed 
can certainly feed that need to have the to have the perfect code to have something that that they're worried about be addressed now so that they don't have to pay for it later on because look developers mm. are the last ones holding the baton they're usually the ones that get beat up when something's not out the door fast enough when in effect they're the they they've been receiving a lot of information from a lot of different people they're the ones between when they get the requirements and getting out the door so they have good reason to want to address certain things in their in the code base a certain way and to manage that. So I, I would say making room for addressing that technical debt as a product manager should be important because you just can't keep pushing that out. It's like pushing out credit card payments. It's going to catch up with you at some point. And let's try to address that as as much as we can during the process and not let those interest payments build up. And we both have an engineering background. I can relate mm-hmm. to that perfection aspect. And we like to build stuff as engineers. We love to solve problems, and then we like to build stuff. And we can get carried away on the buildings, building part. Mm-hmm. We really enjoy bringing, making something new. We might lose track of the real needs along the way. We both have a few years in uh, industry behind us. The example I was thinking of was micrograph- micrographics. They were a, a 90s company that had the leading uh, drawing package for Windows. I think it was Micrographics Designer. Uh, and okay. later, Corel became a thing that was a competitor. So if anyone knew Corel yeah. Draw. Corel Draw. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and now we're all on different platforms. But Micrographics was amazing. It was a really, if you were using Windows, uh, it was the thing to, to draw in. And with mm. every release of the product, it became slower. And uh, the hardware specs you needed that they recommended were increasing. Mm. And they finally just, they disappeared and, and got gobbled up the capability by Corel Draw. I, I think the you know, competitor just purchased them out of the market. I finally ran across a few years ago, someone who was involved in product during this time. And I brought up my frustration. Like I was a fan and the software just got worse and worse as time went on. What was going on there? The person said, the engineering team, they were developing software for themselves. They were making the product Mm, better for themselves. And they lost track of their customers. They certainly lost track of me Mm. in all this. And that's one thing that I've seen, too, is that in an engineering-driven organization, engineering makes the decisions. And that can be a challenge to fight against as a product person. I know you have you, you think this is best, but I'm trying to bring you evidence from our customers that they need this thing over that's here right. instead, right? You're making that's the right. software slower, and everyone can't upgrade their computer every six months when we put out a new version. That's right. And that's a very good point. From a design standpoint, as you said, I've been a engineer for all my life, but having worked enough in UX design, you start to become attuned to where applications have been built or certainly designed by engineers, not built. They're usually built by engineers, but they're designed by engineers. And it's almost now uncanny where I can look at almost any application and say, yeah, this was not designed by a designer. And the way that I can tell is it's very easy. If you look at a screen and it's basically a bunch of form fields with a submit button at the bottom in some shape or form, then that was designed by a developer because that is the easiest way to ingest information from the user is put up a big form and ask them for fill in all the stuff and then click submit. And that is what I call dev-centric design. It is certainly easier for the developer, but it is not easier for the user right? It's easier. And by the way, that's also probably easier for testing as well. 
testing, meaning QA, right? How much, how easy is it to submit the information all on one form instead of go through a set of workflows or do it in different pieces, which causes a bit more complexity, both in the, maybe the front end and the back end. Developers by, by nature will build something for themselves because that's, they are in that mode all day long writing code and they're trying to figure out how do I get this out the door? How do I make this hit the market sooner? And, and you know what? The motivations are good. The motivations are like, hey, I want to have this functioning. I want to have it working. I want to get it out the door. I want people to use it. I think the, the challenge, as you mentioned, is that people may not use it to begin with if it's not designed for them. Right. And, and I think that's the challenge. And the pr- product management, the job of a product manager is a hard one because you have to be the advocate for the business when you have an engineering team that, that may be more focused on getting it out the door, which again is a goal. It is the goal of getting the product out the door in the user's hands. But if you don't get the right product and the right experience out, all your work may be for naught. We'll be back in just a minute. This podcast is sponsored by the RPM Experience, the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. In just nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week, Product managers, teams, and leaders become product masters, creating more value for customers, their organization, and themselves. You will build a broad foundation of product management knowledge, get everyone on the same page, while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer, all resulting in higher performance. Participants feel empowered and more confident about their work. They learn how to create value for customers and revenue for their organization. One product leader who used the RPM experience across a global organization said it is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed. Many organizations have benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at productmasterynow.com RPM. Go to the same URL and schedule time to talk about how Chad and his team can help you and your organization. Let's talk about selecting product features themselves. Right, so if we do our customer research, maybe we've done interviews, ethnographic research, something, and we have a collection of things we can do for the customer, and we probably have more than we we could do than we actually have resources to do. Um, how, how do you think about selecting product features or, or tools you bring to that problem? I, I think there's different ways to to address it. Uh, you know, one is to try to ascribe value to each feature, right? And that value may be value to the customer or the user. Um, uh, it also may be business value as well, right? And I, I think it's a, I realize there's a, there's always a contention about, or where does the business play into it? Is it all about the customer or is it about the business too? And it's about both. The, the business needs to be able to achieve value from this as well. Otherwise they're not going to be you know, around if they're not getting value out of the end result and able to, to generate revenue from it or whatever their business goals are. So many times you can address that value. You can use, the, you can use that ascribed value to help you select which features are uh, most important. The other thing to think about, and sometimes I get concerned that this isn't considered enough, is to think holistically about the scope or the features. Not only the, the current, but the future impact. For example, if you're building a certain feature and it has high value and you need to get it done right now, you may decide that is the next thing to do, even though in the future we may have to go through and do a bunch of redesign because the future version of that feature needs to change. It's a, there's the impact of a certain feature. 
in the design, we're always trying to consider what is the future going to look like for that? Are we going to paint ourselves into a corner by building that feature now? Or how do we leave room for it so that in the future we can add in other features that are complementary to the one that we're building right now? That's the value of UX design. It's one of the values of UX design is to uh, ensure that you're um, uh, giving yourself room to expand uh, in the future. So when we think about features, we think about Again, what is it now? What's the future look like? And the future, by the way, we may not know all the future. We might be learning so iteratively that we can't predict. But with what we know right now, how is that how is that feature going to play into a larger set of features later on? The other thing that we try to think about when we're selecting features is the administration of that feature. For example, you may have a set of, of, of capabilities you're building into the product that are all customer-facing, all user-facing. But it's also most it's also probably quite likely that you're going to have needs on the administration side to handle that feature when it's out in production. If it's a feature that is related to pricing, you may need to be able to adjust pricing or certain schemes in the back end to manage that for different customers. The back end administration involves roles and permissions and data access and things like that. They're not always the sexiest things to talk about, but when you think about releasing a feature, you need to think about it. You're releasing it for a certain user or set of users, certain roles of users, but also those roles may also be related to administration and how are you going to manage that? And it helps to have, a again, a more holistic view of when you're going to release a certain feature that you're also thinking about and you're planning, if you're not even building right now, building out those features for the administration so that you can manage that feature when it goes out. So you're considering the entire scope of work and not being surprised later on when it comes out and oh boy, we got to manage this other thing over here and we, we need development to go and do that now. And that becomes a surprise. And, and I don't particularly like surprises outside of um, birthday parties. I appreciate the caution that you speak about, about the impact saying we're going to go do a certain feature. What does that mean to us in the entire perspective of the work? And there's lots of industries that have large legacy code bases when it comes to software mm-hmm. that really tie our hands from doing lots of things that we want to do. You talk to the uh, product people in those organizations, they have things that they really want to get done, and they've been trying to get them done, and things that the customers want. Mm-hmm. The, the reality is the systems in place really prevent so much that could happen. If we were a startup and we didn't have all that legacy to deal with, we could build something new, right? And probably be faster in, in many respects. That's right. And I think every time we say, yes, hey, yeah, we can build that feature. That's going to be fast and easy, so to speak. Not accounting for its future impact is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the caution of, to think about that, to just go, it's easy to say, yes, now we could do that. But in the future, what does this mean to us? And what should we be putting in place now so that we're mm-hmm. not constricted in the future? That's right. Uh, I'll jump in here and, and get something off my chest about UX design. Because design, okay. if you think about every other engineering space, you're an engineer, I'm an engineer, you go into mechanical, computer engineering, electrical, um, industrial, design is a necessary component. Design is basically planning. Right? We're thinking about what are we going to be doing now? How is that going to work? And what's going to be coming in the future that we have to allow ourselves to, to handle down the road? Only when we get into software does design become an optional activity. 
where it's no, we'll just we'll let the developers design it. We'll product will design it. And they think of design as making pretty pictures, right? The user interface. But design, at least the way that we approach it at Planorama, is thinking about requirements. And the visual design, the UX, is just a component of that. And we have to think, if we're going to think of it from an engineering perspective, we have to think holistically. We have to think about the impact of what we're doing right now in the future, just like you do when you're building a bridge or you do when you're building a, a, anything else in any other engineering discipline. Uh, we, we certainly want to understand as best we can, knowing that it's an iterative process, but as best we can, what is the, how can we leave ourselves the most room? How can we mitigate future risk? Right. And address, address those concerns now. Maybe that future will look very different. The beauty of Agile is that you can bob and weave and maybe it will go a different direction. And that's fine. But with at least the information that right now, how can you do your best to leave yourself an opening in the future and build towards a target that at least at this point is over there? Yeah. The specifics about that is the real challenge, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And along with this podcast, we run a, a community where people in the community are invited to join and uh, participate in this live interview. We publish the interviews much later, usually two to three months later. And we do Q&A at the end with them. But someone just typed in a question I think we should address that fits all this. And the question is, how do you balance optimization with flexibility? And in the software construct, there's often a role called the software architect that's part of the team that is looking at the bigger picture and maybe thinking about what kind of libraries we need, what are our modules, what's the APIs and the like. But at any given time, this issue of building anything, whether it's software or something else, we need flexibility for the future because we don't know where things are going to go. But in some sense, we want it to be optimized to provide value now for the customer. Mm-hmm. And these are real challenges. The, the tension on both ends, right? Sometimes in software, the tension is we can't build that for that one customer because we know we're going to have to have it for the 100,000 customers we expect next year. So let's build the 100,000 person architecture now. Like, wow. Okay, that's a whole nother thing. And there's no flexibility in that. To, to the other side, let's throw together this thing that we expect to not last for the next year. And it ends up being embedded software that we have in legacy systems 30 years later. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. No, that's an interesting question. That's a really good one. To me, optimization is something that is an activity that occurs after you build it the first time and you find out information about how the users are using it or how it's functioning. And by the way, it, engineers are typically ad- uh, addicted to optimization, right? Don't don't use this sort algorithm. Use this other one because it's way better. It's way faster, right? Optimize memory, optimize size, optimize speed, optimize whatever. But when you're thinking as a product manager, your objective is get it out the door so somebody can try it. It may be a little slow. It may not be the best. But if you have an understanding that in the future, you're going to optimize, okay, for what needs to be addressed with that. If it's too big, too slow, too whatever, you'll take care of that. Getting it in people's hands and seeing how they use it is, to me, the first activity, right? And then you are going to again, do that optimization later on based on what their needs are, what the business problems are. Like, for example, if you're building something and it takes way too many servers to to run it, oh, then you optimize it. You're reducing cost, right? You're reducing an internal uh, cost and you address that. But at least you know you're going down the right path because you're solving a problem for the customer, for the user. 
Flexibility, I see that as something different. That is, if you're doing, from again, from a design standpoint, if you're building a feature, and again, it, let's just assume the feature is one that you have a high degree of confidence, you've done some prototyping before, you've tested it. At that point, you want to make sure that that feature as you implement it is, again, not going to paint yourself into a corner in the future where you're like, oh, if we just put it out there and stick it on the end of a menu somewhere, right? Or we create it as a modal over here. In the future, that thing, maybe maybe we're designing as a small thing now, but in the future, it's going to be become bigger and it's going to become its own area of the application, its own real, it's going to have more features in that particular area. Then we should design for that now and try to avoid big redesign efforts later on, right? And it may be that designing it one way or the other is basically the same cost. So if we think about that ahead of time, then we can say this one is less flexible, this one is more flexible. It's the same amount of effort uh, because in the end, you're just designing screens and it's going to be laid out. It's going to be implemented by front end. The back end is probably going to be very similar for these two ways of doing it. Go with the more flexible option. Give yourself that more degrees of freedom in the future. And at that point, it doesn't matter either way, right? Where optimization, usually if you're going to optimize you're having to spend a significant amount of effort in order to achieve that optimization. It's not free. It's not an either or. It's right. one's going to cost you more than the other. So you ought to mitigate that risk Yeah, uh, and, and try to at least get it out there first and make sure it's the right thing. Exactly. Yeah. Don't optimize until we know we have something that actually creates value for the customer. You're very good at saying things much shorter than I say. <laughs> that, 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 that's my job as host here. That's right. So, uh, that's it. We've talked some about selecting uh, features and what goes into that and how to think about that, uh, especially from a software architecture perspective. I did want to ask you uh, something that your group has been doing is incorporating AI in your work and using that to assist with product feature planning. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious about that, right? A lot of these things are popping up and we're seeing people take different shots at this. What are you guys doing? What have you found out so far? I'll tell you, we started a, a couple years ago. I got into GPT-2 when that came out, and I was actually, okay. you could download it. I started looking at these language models. You were a youngster. A young, <laughs> back two years ago. When I, I know, had, so a couple, far. A couple less gray hairs. Um, and, and AI and, years, that's a couple centuries, I think. Oh my gosh, that's the truth, isn't it? When papers seem to be coming out every six hours, that mm -hmm. is that, that is the truth. So I got into that looking to see what this could do. And I started thinking about how could this help me as a pro in product management? And I did, we did some experimentation when GPT-3 came out then. And we built this tool called User Story Generator. In fact, if you go to userstorygenerator.ai, this was a our first R&D attempt to see how product managers could use AI to get past what I thought of as the, the blank screen problem. I need to go and write a user story and maybe I'm having trouble getting started. So here you start with a product idea, you put with your product description, and then uh, it will help you select the different types of users that might be of, uh, may want to use this application. And it will start brainstorming some features. And then you get to a point where it's helping you to write some user stories. And by the narrative, in the narrative form, as a blank, I want to blank so that I can blank. And what I found from that, we put it out into the public. We started getting feedback from folks. We realized that the AI was really good at helping to brainstorm these large language models and the ones that are been trained on everything under the sun, like GPT-3 and now 4. 
They were especially good at helping, I think, product managers to consider other features that may need to be investigated, consider other paths to go down as part of their own interview process when they speak to customers and users. Um, that was a real good find for us to help us understand that. And by the way, it doesn't mean that the AI is doing the work for you. We Product managers, I think if anybody is going to benefit from AI right now, it's product managers to have this kind of uh, helpful sidekick that can help you to consider what is possible and give you ideas for discussions with users and customers. But it doesn't mean that you get to take your brain out of your head and give it to right. the AI and let the AI do the work, right? All of this stuff, and I even try to make mention of this whenever I talk about it, all of this is untested, right? It's giving you ideas and that's enough. At that point, you should be able to go down and investigate whether the the types of users that it gave you are actually the types of users who would use your application. If the if the features it's supplying are ones that users actually are, are considering, it, it, it does not replace, but it does, uh, again, give give product managers who, I by the way, I think product management is kind of a lonely job, right? It gives right, you yes. what I like to call like a little product buddy, right? Uh, somebody to bounce ideas off. Honestly, it's what we do when we're at Planorama Design, when we work with our clients, our product, uh, our interface in the, in our in the company and in, in our client's company is a product manager. And a lot of the value that we provide is usually consultation and thinking through what they're finding, what they're telling us and saying, this is what we've seen in the market. This is what we've seen, how things work, especially in SaaS application and those kind of products where we get the benefit of working with lots of different companies. And, and so we get to figure out, oh, here's what we've seen, right? And many things are analogies. Uh, AI, we're finding, and, and in particular, this brainstorming idea can actually provide some of that value too. It doesn't mean that it's been validated, but it certainly does assist with that. And we actually are building a tool. It's called Symphony, and we're using that as basically a way to help product managers and product teams to define and collaborate around scope. And it uses the AI, as a, it uses a couple different AIs, and one of them is to help you brainstorm and think through it and get your head around scope and make sure that we're all in agreement and, and certainly that it's been validated as well with the customer. Good potential there. And you gave a URL, the, the current tool that's available, userstorygenerator.ai. That's right. You can go check that out and see how, how they like that as an AI tool to help them brainstorm about user stories. That's right. And symphonia.site is the, the website for our it's a placeholder site right now, but we're getting the final one built up. And that's the one that we're really, in. User Story Generator helped us to do the R&D that is going into Symphonia. But User Story Generator is a completely free tool. You can log in and give it a try out, and, and I'd love to hear any feedback. Thanks for that. I think this is a has lots of potential, right? These AI tools to help us do our work better. I've been using ChatGPT again with my professor hat on, mm -hmm. working on a book as well as course development. It's just a writing muse, right? To help me think of ideas and topics and summarize information to uh, give you the best thing, but it's a great writing muse. You shared a quote with us before. We do like innovation quotes. Uh, anything else you wanted to say about perfect is the enemy of good? Yeah, I used to call it great is the enemy of good enough, uh, but uh, I was recently corrected that it was perfect is the enemy of good. And I think that's a better quote, actually. I think, and, it, and that's more correct coming from Montesquieu. Great is actually what we strive for, and great can be good enough. You can design something to be good enough, and it's still great as it is. But the perfection is the problem, right? And as I said, 
designers and engineers tend to be perfectionists and we all have to reel ourselves in at times and say, look, customers have a problem to be solved. And while we're here trying to make this perfect, they still got the problem. And what, and as you said, I think that idea of a minimum viable experiment, that ability to get something out there and just see if it works, see if, if people use it. If you have customers that you can pick up the phone and talk with and get on a Zoom meeting and ask them, hey, let's walk through this. What do you think? That is invaluable. That is wonderful information that can help you figure out if you're going down the right path. Yeah, that's all I have to say about it. Very good. Thanks for sharing the quote with us. Sure. How can people find out about the work you're doing? Make sure we put the links in the show notes. They can reach at planorama.design slash podcast. If that'd probably be the easiest way to go. So planorama, P-L-A-N-O-R-A-M-A dot design slash podcast is a great way to reach me. And it also has my information for connecting me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. We'll put that in show notes. Really enjoy you being with us. We're going to continue this discussion a little bit with our private community. So that's coming up next. Anyone that wants to find out about being part of that private community, please go to productmasterynow.com slash community. So really enjoyed it, Matt. Thanks again for being with us today. Thank you so much, Kat. It was really nice to meet you too. And as a reminder, Product Masters, please find the written detailed summary of everything we talked about, including that one page takeaway that you can put into action. Some of the key takeaways are at productmasterynow.com slash four, five, eight. Everyone keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.